You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Crispin Starwell, it is good to see you again. Daniel Kaufman, good to see you too. Um, uh, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, bloggingheads.tv, meaningoflife.tv. This is the Sophia program available on streaming video and audio podcast. I'm here with Crispin Sartwell, prof- Associate Professor of Philosophy at Dickinson College, uh, now uh, occupying different digs, um, and um, just wrote, just not, not very long ago, just published an essay in Standpoint Magazine called Overrated Ludwig Wittgenstein. And as uh, the audience knows, that was bound to attract my attention, <laughs> Um, and so I said to, I said to Crispin, I said, what you talking about, Crispin? Yeah. And, it's like the um, white supremacism thing, right? <laughs> and it so worse, maybe, though. we're going to have him on, we're going to have you uh, talk about this. Um, all right. So was this something that they asked you to do? Is this something you just, is this part of a series like your, why they suck series or. Okay. It's kind of interesting, I guess. Uh, not really, but, uh, yeah, I, I did a why they suck, uh, for splice today on Wittgenstein. Uh, they contacted me then that they wanted one for their overrated series on Wittgenstein. I said, I had already done it. They said they knew that. In fact, they based that series and standpoint on why they suck. And no they, way. Really? Yeah, and, yeah. And they started with Harry Potter because I had done Harry Potter <laughs> Uh, anyway, whatever. And then the editor was gone the next day after he, uh, commissioned the thing or something. So I on like left the operation. Like, yeah, I think so. That's weird. I don't know if I had anything to do with that, but so, Hey, I like your t-shirt, man. Black flag. Yeah. Hardcore. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, you know, let me, I want to ask you something before we get into the details, because Something bothers me a little bit about the why they suck and the and and the and the overrated and I guess I want to I want to feel out from you because I I I think you're so awesome. I it's uncomfortable for me. I'm I find I'm a little uncomfortable with this whole category and I want to get a yeah. better sense of what you mean by it. Look, I understand the idea that of of knocking down totems and, and not, not idolizing people and all that sort of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there also seems to me a, another side of it where one starts to display a serious lack of humility in the proper sense of the virtue. I'm not talking about, you know, a phony kind of um, 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 self-deprecation, but just more the sort of the healthy understanding yeah. that um, these people aren't stupid. These questions are very difficult and, in a hundred years, people will still be reading them and no one will know who the hell I am. I mean, sort of, you know, it, it just to kind of a, to, to give some, at least some credit, credit to the fact that these have become major texts and people in the history of ideas and that they've to a good extent helped shape the actual conversation that all of us are in. Well, you know, a lot of the, why they suck those about, uh, you know, Bob Dylan, Springsteen, you know what I mean? Like yeah. most of it's not philosophy or, right. or literature. Yeah. But I would oh, say something about those. Yeah. I, all right. So, I mean, I think that, I guess if, if that's, you know, if, along the lines of that question, um, I think that people's reputations often do not reflect their quality. I think people get promoted willy-nilly, arbitrarily, 
often. Uh, you know, after a while, you can't think about the history of whatever without them. You know, so like, you, it, this is true of Dylan, for example, if you ask me, like, he should have just been an obscure folky, okay? Uh, that, in my opinion, is the quality of his work. But we'll never be able to tell the story of the 60s, even. The, the whole social events and stuff like that of the period without Dylan, because they started immediately to tell it that way. Um, you know, Plato's, the fact that all philosophies are, foot, are footnotes to Plato um, doesn't necessarily reflect the quality of Plato, but like certain, uh, you know, kind of historical contingencies or someone's agenda at a certain moment, things like that. So I guess I'm not really impressed by history, or I'm suspicious about a lot of these historical reputations. And I don't think the test of time is particularly valid, actually. Well, but it, it's not valid as an indicator of quality, which is what wasn't really what I was suggesting. It's more that, and maybe maybe I'm, uh, the way that you now answered now clear, clear, focuses me a little bit. I guess what I was saying was, isn't it our job as scholars and analysts to address the history we actually have, as opposed to wishing we had a different history, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I guess what I what I wonder about this is if there's a kind of um, it's it's a it's a very easy kind of thing to do. It's not going to change the fact that if you want to talk about music history, you have to talk about Bob Dylan. I mean, you could you could write ten thousand essays like this. Right. The fact of the matter is, this is the history we actually have. Right. So one thing, if we want to be critics and analysts, we have to actually deal with the history there is, not wish we had a different history. Right. No, we can try to retell that the history. Uh, and I mean, one thing that means is that if I wrote ten thousand articles attacking Bob Dylan his reputation would be completely intact. Like the people who I am attacking, I feel like are invulnerable, basically, you know, like their reputations are solid gold. And I, I sort of don't think that they're, I mean, but, but it's, it's also true that there's a certain kind of, there's an extreme intellectual arrogance in that pose of Wittgenstein sucks, you know? Um, and I, I, you know, I, I'm worried about that in myself. Uh, it's probably damaged my whole uh, arc of my career in philosophy. Like, okay, so I was taking a graduate seminar with Cora Diamond on Wittgenstein. Uh, this is '87, maybe. I kind of uh, envy. I kind of envy you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I and I didn't get enough out of it because I was really intent on ridiculing Wittgenstein and ridiculing his followers. Okay. Uh, and that didn't, I thought I was doing it in a good humored, fun way, but provocative, but it, you know, it didn't go over. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, look, here's, here's where I completely agree with you. I think that the super defensive reaction is worse. I mean, look, he's not, a, he's not insulting your mother for God's sake. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, people, sure. I do find the way that people tend to possess these things to be quite, uh, weird. Um, 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 I don't really quite understand it. I understand getting yeah. that impassioned over your sister or your kid or your, I don't understand getting that impassioned over some musician that has no idea who the hell you are. Right. Right. Um, it took um, me, <laughs> it, it took me a long time to realize that if I insulted someone's favorite musician and, you know, just maybe just straight up abuse kind of, that they would feel personally insulted. Right. You might, you might as well have insulted their mother. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, yeah. the last thing I want to say about this and then we'll get into Wittgenstein is, um, in the why they suck 
this whole mode, I, I did type something else and that is, and that I wonder about, and that is, look, there's plenty of stuff I don't like. Um, there's plenty of stuff I might even make fun of. Uh, you know, my daughter and I have a constant back and forth, um, where I'll make fun of music she's listening to just cause, yeah. she's, you know, so, so, in my view, so terrible. But I do also have a kind of basic respect for other people in the following sense. I think highly of her. Yeah. And she like, and this is something yes. she really likes. I've been through so, that too. And so, so you are able to adopt. In other words, yeah. As long as the other person isn't being kind of a jerk about it. Yeah. You are inclined somewhat to accept other people's taste and not yeah. in, indirectly insult them by suggesting that somehow, well, I think this is terrible. So therefore, obviously you have no taste at all. Right. I mean, um, or do you, or do you, are you really kind of, you know, screw, screw you, man, your shit sucks. Right. I mean, <laughs> okay. well, you know, I don't know if I've talked about this with you, but, um, you know, I grew up, in a family of brothers and all of them music fanatics. Oh, wow. One thing. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And like, we would just like, we would get stoned, drunk, whatever, and argue all night. Fight to the and, death about music. Yeah. <laughs> and just insult, you know, just knit the worst insults we could imagine for the, pe- the people, the other people like, you know, and that's kind of like, it's like that kind of culture infested my brain, you know? Uh, so that to me, it seems fun. Okay. Like I, I sort of like want someone to come back at me in a spirit of like fun. I'm trying to okay. have you funny, have fun. Yeah. And, and that I think that I think is a perfectly healthy thing to do. You know, the fact, and the fact that others are so deadpan in the reaction is, I think, a problem. I guess I just wasn't entirely sure of your intention, intentions. Yeah. Um, and now that it's sort of clear that you, you're kind of, you're kind of as, a young boy would do daring somebody to fight you. Right. And yes, I, I really, I actually quite like that. Um, and I <laughs> wish that, you know, it's difficult to be the only one who's being playful. Yes. <laughs> and as we both know, in today's climate, nobody is willing to be no. playful. Right. I mean, it's just, so. yes. And in grad school. Okay. I was continuously playful and I always thought it was going to go over, you know, like just like and man, oh man, they took us seriously. Yeah. I actually think if you'd been in grad school now, I'm not sure you would have made it through. I mean, it's yeah, it's, I think um, so too. And I don't think I would have. Um, 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 and I'm even not as much of a bomb thrower as you, but um, people are so yeah. prickly, it's impossible. Yeah. Okay, so let me um, let's get started. Um, maybe first, it seemed to me that the standpoint piece focused a lot about on personality on and on Wittgenstein's impact on people as a personality. Yeah. Now, I guess what I want to ask you is sort of, you know, is that the bulk of your critique of him? Is there a more substantive side to it, which you think he's overrated? Um, And um, (coughs) excuse me. um, Do we want to sort of, address philosophers and philosophies primarily by the character of their <clears throat> proponents, given that so many fucked up people, right? I mean, do yeah, philosophy. Um, yes. Talk around what you were trying to do there and what your attitude is. Yeah. Um, now that's true. It kind of focused on his personality. Uh, I mean, I think that bears on the philosophy and we could, the writing, we could talk about that in various ways, but I think you're right to separate those out provisionally. You know, it's not like I'm 
you know, morally assessing, you know, Hegel or something like that for every action. <clears throat> um, I mean, I'll, I'll just say autobiographically again, like, okay, I, when I was studying at University of Virginia in the 80s, Cora Diamond was there. Renford Bambro was visiting, uh, who's, that was a British philosopher who knew Wittgenstein. Uh, Rorty, probably Wittgenstein might have been his biggest hero. I, there's a couple other candidates, you know, Dewey and Heidegger, maybe. Um, there was, and, and it felt like a cult in a way. I mean, especially when you're dealing with Core Diamond and, and folks like that. Like, the only question appeared to be, what did Wittgenstein really mean? Yeah. Okay? Like, they, there wasn't a question, like, what's the best position here? Or what arguments can you give? But what did Wittgenstein really mean was the way you answered any significant <laughs> Yeah. Um, also, I think, okay, I was rebelling very severely against Rorty and... Um, and so that involved rebelling, at least to some extent, against uh, Wittgenstein as he read him. Although, certainly, I think, like, okay, his reading is slanted in a certain way. Almost. I was going to say, do you think Rorty read Wittgenstein correctly? <sighs> yes and no. I mean, he read him tendentiously. He read him as agreeing with everything that Rorty believed. I felt like Rorty read everything yes. in the history of philosophy in a kind of an absorbing, an absorption kind of. And by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you clear and that, that that's what you're doing, right? I mean, he's not, you're not clearly speaking doing the history of ideas, but you're kind of pulling all these threads that you think comprise maybe a, a, an articulable tradition that you think is a good one, right? I mean, um, right. Um, his, his basic purpose was not to get Wittgenstein right but to annex him to his pro- his project. I felt like he did that with Davidson. Yeah. Um, the only awkward thing was that Davidson was a contemporary, and so when you saw them, there was dialogues with them, you yes. realize how different they are. Yes. If you read Rorty, you might think that Rorty's a Davidsonian, and I, yes. I, I don't really think he is, right? I mean... And, I, and to some extent, I had to come out from that spell and kind of realize that there's a Rorty Dewey, and then there's a, you know, there's other Deweys, and, yeah, you know, yeah. and that, that, that's what he was doing. But, you know, Rorty, I guess Rorty's basic view, as I saw it at the time anyway, was that we are trapped in language. And there is no exit into the world from language. And he read Wittgenstein as asserting that, at least within the realm of philosophy in some sense, okay? Um, And then Rorty also argued that philosophy was over. You know, I mean, maybe Wittgenstein was the last gasp or just after the last gasp. Um, and that Wittgenstein had shown that there were no substantive problems or even articulable problems in philosophy. And, you know, and that, and that therefore philosophy should be replaced by poetry or fiction writing and, and stuff like that. If you were dealing with Core Diamond, even what could be a legitimate philosophical project, like for a dissertation or whatever, was unbelievably restricted to examination of, you know, meaning of terms in this Wittgensteinian way, melting rather than addressing philosophical problems through linguistic analysis. I mean, so I I was in this atmosphere where I didn't even think, I went into it because I love philosophy, all right? 
And then I found out that this is just, it's completely over. It's been over for decades. Uh, and that all that's left is kind of, you know, to talk to the grave diggers or whatever, you know. And so I, I felt, I almost felt at a certain point, like I just needed to destroy Wittgenstein. Like it was just like, uh, because he was destroying my, <laughs> my discipline that I loved or whatever, you know. Um, you know, what's interesting though is that, and I'm sure you, you you know this as well as I do, but you know, I, early in the days of this program, I had a Wittgenstein scholar on. He's an old friend of mine. We go back, you know, we go back um, almost 20 years now um, in the UK. His name is Ian Ground, and and you know, we were talking about how the fact that Wittgenstein actually has almost zero influence in analytic philosophy today. And what's sort of what's sort of interesting mm-hmm. is the way in which your experience represented the last gasp of the dominance of that paradigm. All you had to do was wait five minutes and he would have vanished. Right. I mean, <laughs> and so I guess also that also puzzled me a little bit about why you're going after the guy now when, you know, the number of Wittgensteinians, you know, you could, they're basically like, you know, three philosophy hobos wandering around the you know, the Peter hacker and like two other people. Right, wandering around trying, trying to sort of you know we're, we're still here, um, but I my my impression is that philosophy is completely at least analytic philosophy is completely sort of went beyond him, primarily as evinced by the um, obsession with cognitive science and with I mean with, with yeah. the whole predicate on which is and is is the opposite it, it, the whole predicate yeah. on which is exactly what Wittgenstein thought you shouldn't do. Yeah. Part of the reason I think it's so important to bring Wittgenstein back is I think that that's one of the worst wrong turns philosophy's ever taken. I agree with you. Cognitive revolution. I agree. I was a little puzzled as to why you're going after him now when, you know, he's like the dead parrot in, 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 <laughs> in the Monty Python sketch, right? I mean, he's, he's done, man. I mean, he's more, he's more, you're more likely to hear him in a lit, in a lit crit environment than wow. you are here, right? In philosophy. Well, I, I should really look. I mean, I think he's still read and respected in various ways. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess we're still going back to the eighties, but like Kripke on rule following and stuff yeah, like that. That's 40 uh, years old. I mean, that's, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and what, I mean, me doing these overrated and why they suck things. I'm pulling back on things I hated in decades past. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't care about Bruce Bruce. Bob Dylan is not recent. Yeah. 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 And my resentment is not recent. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these things I, I cultivated as, te- as a teenager, but I think a lot of philosophers would, if you ask them and analytic philosophers, what is the greatest work of the 20th century? I still think philosophical investigations might come out number one or something. Yes. When you uh, look at surveys. Yeah. Um, it would be that. It would be Rawls's theory of justice. I mean, yeah. there would be three or four things that might um, word an object. Um, yeah. Um, um, naming and necessity, right? I mean, yes. these, will the, these will be the names that come up. Um, um, and look, I mean, it was a very philosophy of language heavy century. Yes. Um, and um, I, and I think for the most part that was that was a, a good thing. I, I know that you don't. Um, 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 and actually, you know, one of the things we were, we were going to talk about that we kind of lost, which I'm, which I'm going to make sure we do talk about in the future is each of our estimations of the linguistic turn, right? I mean, I yeah. mean um, um, because, um, it was well, hugely, it hu- basically all the different areas of philosophy now got reexamined through the linguistic idiom, right? I mean, metaphysics yeah. now is basically philosophy language, right? 
Yeah, and this is true in Continental too. Yeah, yeah. In the twentieth century. Yeah. Um, and I, do, you know, I don't regret. I don't. I don't reject the um, the emphasis on language. I reject the exclusive emphasis on language. Yeah. Uh, hypnosis by language. I think a lot of great work emerged from that, actually, and a lot of uh, people got a lot clearer on a lot of things. And it enabled them actually to address more usefully some of these traditional philosophical questions too. Yeah. Uh, or melt them away. It's funny. I think of the 20th century in philosophy very much like I think of the 20th century in art. Um, I, I, I do think that that period, um, you know, basically, you know, from Moore and Russell through, let's say, Kripke is some of the best philosophy that's ever been done in the entire history. Just like I feel. I don't deny that. I feel like the the basically that relatively small arc period in which you get um, the German expressionists, the Fauvists, um, um, is one of the greatest periods in painting. Um, um, okay. Um, and yeah, all right. And and you know, so so the, then the then the question becomes the details. Now, look, you know, maybe we want to dispense with this thing of personality quite quickly. I mean, it, clearly Wittgenstein was kind of a horrible guy, right? Um, um, you read that Wittgenstein. You read that Wittgenstein's poker book. I mean, it's pretty clear the man yeah. is kind of a lunatic, um, quite abu- abusive to students in a way that we just simply don't accept. Uh, the only area we accept that kind of abusiveness to students still is in performing arts, which I don't understand. But uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, well, I don't understand yeah. why it's still accepted. Um, um, yeah. Because if any of us behaved that way, we'd be fired instantly. Um, yeah. um, so I guess I'm willing to sort of concede. Okay, terrible guy. Eccentric and and the unhealthy obsession with him as a personality yes. is also bad, um, but that fair still enough. leaves the philosophy right. Okay, fair enough. You know, I mean, Heidegger was a fucking Nazi. Yeah, but that still leaves the philosophy right. Yeah, that's true. Um, Some so of it anyway. What's your problem with the philosophy? Because I, I I know you don't just dismiss him on the personality. I know you have a problem with the philosophy. So. Could you articulate maybe in a general sense, and then we'll go into some of the specific areas? Um, sure. What's your problem with the philosophy? And obviously there's the earlier and the later. I don't know if you want to disambiguate the Tractatus from the investigations or you just want to talk as a whole. What's your problem with it philosophically? Right, but it, this is going to stay fairly meta. Um, I mean, it's the kind of thing I was saying before. It's like the sense of entrappedness in language. Um, and, you know, so, and, and also, I guess, and, and uh, you know, maybe this is all ancillary, but the style in which it is presented also annoys me. Okay. Right? I mean, I can see that, I can see how someone might be charmed by it. I mean, really, or seduced by it, or it, it, it almost seems humble. And, but, you know, after I read like 10, 20, 30 pages of um, rhetorical questions, that, uh, where after a while I'm not sure what he thinks the answers are, or he's just like throwing up more questions, um, you know, or many passages where I don't think that the goal is clarity whatsoever. I mean, but, but that can be okay because he's saying that these things are much more complicated and subtle than we are uh, thinking they are. But still, I think that, um, or then philosophy presents them as being like these questions about meaning. Right. For example, like we're going to have to make this a lot more complex before we offer any sort of account if we ever do. Right. And I respect that because I think that's true. I mean, I've just been rereading the investigations 
And there's a lot I like about it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and more than I like about it now than I did in 87, too. Um, now, okay, so I guess the for me, the baleful philosophical effects okay. have to do with this kind of entrappedness in language and the characterization of philosophy. It, it, philosophy has got to be over if the philosophical investigations is accurate, right? Like it's, there's nothing in philosophy except showing that philosophical problems are not really problems. And once you're done with that, surely you're done with philosophy on this, on this conception. Like the, the metaphilosophical, um, stuff here, like in the, in the low 100s, uh, trying to, you'll have, you'll have to read it because I don't, I, I did not bring a copy with me. So, yeah. Um, let's see. I mean, I got some little notes here about <laughs> things I could talk about. Um, so like 109, Philosophical Investigations 109. Um, we must do away with all explanation. And description alone must take its place. And this description gets its light, that is to say, its purpose from the philosophical problems. These are, of course, not empirical problems. They are solved, rather, by looking into the workings of our language. And that in such ways to make us recognize these workings in despite of an urge to misunderstand them. Misunderstand them. The problems are solved not by giving new information, but by arranging what we have always known. Philosophy is a battle against the bewitchment of our intelligence by means of language. Right. All right. And, and it's a battle against the bewitchment of our intelligence by language in philosophy. Right. Like exclusively. And he says, uh, well, he says things like, you know, philosophy begins when language goes on holiday. I mean, yes. all stuff. okay. So there's this two, two things that you just laid out. One is the sort of idea that philosophical problems are largely illusions that are created by either misunderstanding the use, the different uses of ordinary language um, 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 or, or confusing ordinary language with technical language and so on and so forth. The other now, this side, is direct, I think it direct directly inherits the positivist. Right. And, and the other side of it is, is that you just like the gnomic kind of yes. um, um, rhetorical, um, uh, somewhat mysterious kind of quality to it. And so let's yes. just take both of those just to begin with. Um, okay. um, so the idea that philosophical problems, and let's just say, in my, in my case, what I would want to say is often, not always, but the idea that philosophical problems often are the result of confusions regarding uses of language. Now, that's an idea that, not just Wittgenstein runs with, but that the ordinary language philosophers run with. And as you've said in the past, you're a big fan of J.L. Austin. Yes. I guess I don't understand on that front what you dislike about Wittgenstein's uh, doing, doing it this way and Austin's doing it that way. I mean, Austin, in, in Sense and Sensibilia, tries to pretty much dissolve um, and, and erase an entire area of epistemological inquiry, right? Yes. Um, 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 specifically sort of uh, 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 foundationalist style uh, theories of warrant. Argue, theory. Illusion arguments against, um, against realism, uh, against uh, direct realism, and you are a direct realist. Yes, sense data theory or whatever. Right, and so I guess I don't understand 
why when Austin does it, you like it, and when Wittgenstein does it, you think it's overrated? I don't think Austin, I should look back at this, and I, but I imagine maybe he says things along these lines, but I should look. Well, again. he doesn't make metaphilosophical right, statements exactly. like that, but he does it, right? Yes. I mean, he. Right, so show me uh, is, I guess, the thing. And, uh, you know, Wittgenstein does that too. He, he gets a lot out of this. But I think, like, his own hostility toward the whole philosophical. I, I think of Austin as pursuing philosophical questions through the means of linguistic analysis or whatever. So, you know, I, he, I think I read him, although this might not be right, actually, but I read him as going directly against sense data theory, attacking it. Yes. Uh, and like opening up the way for a different account of perception. Um, specifically going after A.J. Ayer's uh, yes. problem of knowledge. Yeah. Yes. But Wittgenstein, I don't think, Okay, I don't think he thinks like assertion about sense data or something like that, or like a you know the idea idea is meaningful at all, or and that it should or could be refuted. You know, so I, I, I guess I see him as more distant. I, look, I find Austin's writing more charming, um, but I, I think he. You know, Austin is less distant from the tradition in the sense that he's more directly engaged in some of those questions. Uh, I also think like the linguistic analysis in some ways is like the performative stuff, speech act theory is sharper in the sense that it's quite a bit clearer. You know, it's and quite- it also is a positive contribution. It's not yeah. a, it is. He's he's offering a positive account of something as opposed to simply dismantling or undermining yes. or. But I could see that as a legitimate project. I mean, the dismantling can be a legitimate project. Yeah. But, but if, but I also think that it's ultimately for Wittgenstein, this is an a priori assertion of some kind that philosophy is nonsense. I, I don't think that there's any real, unless, I mean, unless you get the whole machinery of the Tractatus behind you. I don't know if I think that that's an unargued assumption. Um, I think, yeah. it's, I think it's a combination of a reaction. Yes. And, something you say if you, if you're coming from a particular frame. And so look, yes. I mean, part of this, you do have to go back to the Tractatus because one of the things that, you know, that puzzles people so much is you have this whole thing and then you have these, this statement at the very end, right? Which completely, it's almost like an M night Shyamalan movie. It completely turns around, right? You thought this guy, look, this fooled all the positivists. They were ready to like yes. take Wittgenstein and give him a little crowd and, sh- and, and, you know, and parade him around. And Wittgenstein's like, you completely misunderstood what I was saying, right? Um, and this right, actually, this is actually, this is why I actually think, wonder why a little bit, why you are so animated against him is because it's not that Wittgenstein is saying that those things that we cannot discuss philosophically are not significant or don't exist or whatever. He actually says the opposite. He says, actually, that's all the really important stuff. The, the stuff that can't be said, but only shown, right? Now, okay. look, I think that, Let's 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 be let's be sort of you know uh, straight with each other. I actually think that's a very deep insight. Um, I think we wildly overrate just how much can be demonstrated to others about things that really matter. Sometimes and, and, and yes. causes tremendous frustration. 
And I think if people let go, if people adopted a bit more of a vacancy in the attitude, there actually would be less conflict on these sorts of things, right? Because you get so frustrated that you can't get the person to agree with you because they're not accepting your, your arguments or your proofs or whatever. And that's because what you're trying to persuade them of is something that you can only come to see. It, it, this is especially big in aesthetics. Think about Frank Sibley, right? You can't okay. demonstrate to somebody that something has a certain aesthetic quality. They have to see it. Now, there's ways right. you can try and help them to see it. Yes. And I guess the part of what I like about Wittgenstein is he actually understands that on very many important things, you may never be able to get someone to see it, and you will never philosophically convince them of it because it's not that kind of thing. Yes. Now, what's wrong with <clears> – <throat> isn't that a lot of what he's doing? It's sort of trying to show you in all these places where philosophers have mistakenly thought that you can kind of grind these things out intellectually and thus get other people, but that really, with most of the things that really matter to us, you yeah. either share a sensibility or you don't, right? Okay, so first of all, if that really is the point of the Tractatus, he left it to the last sentence, right, didn't he? I mean, uh, because he wanted to show what you could do in philosophy. He what he gave it the best version he could, and it's and what he realized was how limited it was, right? Right. Okay, so look, man, I think that uh, okay. The first thing I want to say is like we talk about that kind of stuff all the time. All right, I don't I don't even know what he's talking about. Like if he's saying that aesthetics, ethics, religion are, are things that cannot be spoken. Well, we can I, talk gonna, about them, like, when is the last time you convinced somebody to like something? When is the last time you talked somebody into enjoying or liking something? They have to, all you can do happened. is show it to them, right? It, yes, yeah, completely. Okay. Th that's completely true. But like, why would you start out with this a priori, we can't talk about this, we can't talk about that, we can't talk this way, we can't talk that way. We'll never be able to elucidate this whole area because it's not even discussable. Or like, let's talk about the ways language interacts with gestures, demonstrations, walking around and stuff like that. Like that's the investigation. That's the investigations, right? So in other words, he yes. exposed the limitations yes. of the picture theory of meaning in the Tractatus, right? And then he said, okay, obviously, this is not how language works, right? Um, right. Um, and in the investigations, he tries to look at language, you know, in a much at a much more ground level in terms of how it actually the actual function of it with all the stuff that you just mentioned, right? Um, so and, look, if I'm if I'm a writer, okay, if if my job is writing, and this is all stuff that cannot be written, like all the topics that matter are things that cannot be written about. First of all. That's false, man. And then second of all, why are you a priori going to do this to me? Okay. And I think he thought that too, eventually, maybe, although he's not really back in ethics and aesthetics very much in the investigations or something like that. No, either. there's just, he, there's some lectures on aesthetics that are basically notes that yeah. GE Moore took in lectures that he did. Yeah. Um, but I suspect that because those are areas where the, you have to see it, you can't be convinced in, into it is probably the most plausible. Um, if, if you're going to accept it anywhere at all, it's probably the most plausible, right? Um, I, can't, I can't convince you that something is delicate. You, have, you either perceive its delicacy or not, right? No, you can convince me. I've been convinced of all kinds of stuff. 
I mean, I've, I've just been dating a painter for the last five years, okay? And we've been to, like, every museum in the world, kind of, you know? Not really, but uh, many. And she's changed me on a number of things. She's By way of arguments? Sometimes. She's not a very arguey person, okay? But uh, Listen, if you have a refutation of Frank Sibley's arguments regarding the ascription of aesthetic properties, you know, you can get you, you can become a very famous man. I mean, I'd like to hear it. Um, um, that kind of stuff I, never I, helped I me get this for, you. Stuff for 25 years, and I'll tell you right now, I still I still don't see any way that you can actually deduce or otherwise infer an aesthetic property from a set of underlying descriptive ones, and that's what you'd have to be able to do in order to be able to philosophically convince something that something is delicate or beautiful, right? No, it's it, okay. In the the real context in which you can do that, you're tossing around aesthetic concepts, but you're in conversation with someone, you're in a space in front of an object, gesturing and stuff like this. Right. And the words are part of that whole interaction. And, of course, we can uh, elucidate aesthetic concepts, you know, wave at them, you know, elaborately re-describe works of art, show each other that we've misunderstood works of art. I have had that experience, uh, even though, you know, I do why they suck or whatever. You know, I might seem unpersuadable. Uh, like, and, but, okay, but that so, is getting you to see something. That's not convincing yes. you of something in the philosophical sense. I mean, that is getting you to see something that you hadn't seen previously. Now, part of the way you might do it is by describing the picture in different ways, drawing their attention to different parts of the picture, whatever. Yeah. At the end of the day, that is not the same as demonstrating something through an argument. No, no but, but philosophy is more than just a series of uh, arguments on, pa- on the page, too. I don't know why people are so hostile toward philosophy, like at that moment, like Wittgenstein or whatever. Like, okay, when Moore goes, here's a hand and here's another, he is in a physical space demonstrating, gesturing. That's part of his discourse, okay? Um, Now, a hand cannot be said. A hand can only be shown. But that can be embedded in a entire course of linguistic, uh, uh, you know, argumentation or whatever, you know, giving reasons and so on. Um, and not only that, but I think that Moore, I, th- we, I don't know if we talked about this, but when Moore gives a philosophical lecture, that is an ordinary, an ordinary context. Okay. Like there's nothing supernaturally bizarre about that. I've given hundreds of philosophical lectures. You have too, man. Like, and you're still a physical body in physical space. You're still gesturing. You have intonations. You, you know, uh, you know, here is a hand, honestly, means exactly the same thing coming out of Moore's mouth as it would, you know, in another context, if you could dream up another context. Um, I think philosophy is, should not be separated from ordinary language and then condemned on that basis. It seems fairly ordinary to me, or it's an extension of ordinary language in various ways, or it might contradict that and float free uh, or something like that. Let's bring it back with, uh, you know, some reasons and stuff. It's like just that. interesting that you say that because, you know, I, for one, have always tended to, I mean, so Stanley Rosen, um, late Stanley Rosen was a professor um, at, um, at Yale and, um, um, Really, a very good philosopher. I think he, he mostly was a classicist, but he did. He had a, he has a collection of works called Metaphysics and Ordinary Language that I really think is amazing. And one of the okay. things he, he describes philosophy as extraordinary speech. 
Um, um, and, and, and this is part of his argument for why ultimately we cannot get outside of or beyond common sense because in a sense, um, it's the frame, it's, it's the standard of adequacy against which we deem all forms of extraordinary speech. Otherwise, they just turn into poetry, right? I mean, th- there has to be, and, and this, this, this is actually gonna, this is gonna come up when we talk about uncertainty, which I hope we're gonna, we're gonna get to, um, not too long from now. Um, but, it's interesting that you say what you just said because Austin, the whole point of his critique in Sense and Sensibilia of Air is that Air and all the other positivists, right, are using terms in extraordinary rather than ordinary senses, right? And so I guess, I guess I'd like to hear, I want to hear a lot more before I accepted the idea that philosophers, as they traditionally ply their trade, are employing ordinary rather than extraordinary speech, right? Um, um. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, there's a spectrum there, I guess, you know. Uh, of course, I guess there are philosophers who've introduced entire kind of technical vocabularies that didn't exist before. Uh, someone like even Hegel or Heidegger is probably, you know, doing that, or Derrida. But even normal words like illusion, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean – Austin kind of shows how the philosophical use of that term or reality or real or physical material object, right? I mean, all these things, this is all the way, this, this, this takes you back to Descartes, right? I mean, this takes you back to, that's a pretty, I mean, I'm not denying that there's nobody in the history of ideas who sort of employed these kinds of terms in their ordinary senses. But I thought it was the whole point of the ordinary language critique that, that that's not the case. And that's part of the reason why we get these bewitchments, right? Is that philosophers are using regular words in very odd ways, right? Um, well, you know, when Descartes, let's say Descartes uses the word dream. All right. I, I don't, I actually look back at sense and sensibilia, but I don't think that he, I, I mean, my basic uh, idea on this is that, and I'm just about to teach, you know, the meditations yet again. Uh, is he means by dream just what we mean by it. I mean, or just, you know, just what Freud means by it, or just what uh, a person in a cafe talking about what their dream last night means by it. Um, I think that if we're talking about illusions, the problem isn't probably, in that case, the meaning, the use of the term illusion, but, you know, investigating what we do mean by illusion as a way to heal the idea, for example, that the whole world could be an illusion. I don't think that of those as senseless, I believe I understand them. So when Descartes says like, how do I know I'm not dreaming right now? You know, I'm not sitting there going like, you know, I don't understand how you're using those words, man. I think you're using, I think he's using them just, you know, now there could there could be deviant or technical terms. There could be cases where language leads you very far astray. Like you make you have a certain definition or characterization or reconstruel of a particular term that you know, like the way maybe the way Hegel uses the word absolute or something like that. You know, or uh, um, but I think I'm not sure why philosophy hates itself this bad. Like why, why it thinks that I don't think language is on a holiday every time out in every philosophical sentence for 2000 years. No, neither do I. And look, and look, neither do I. And that's the sense to which, you know, um, 
I don't take on, I don't have heroes. Right. And I don't, and I don't, um, and I don't, I mean, if I say something like I'm a Wittgensteinian, I don't mean what a lot of people mean by it. Um, um, I'm more, look, in this sense, I'm a bit more like Rorty in that I want to pull what I think is the really strong stuff from, from everywhere I go. And it just so happens that I find a lot of the stuff in this tradition very strong. Yes. I certainly don't accept it wholesale. Um, um, uh, I, I mean, I've actually written pieces in which, um, I've, I've, I've pointed to the sort of limits of the kind of Wittgensteinian analysis. I've sort of tried to talk to a little bit about why maybe in some sense, ultimately it's not completely satisfying. And so I, you know, I'm not some kind of slavish devotee. I'm certainly right. not as much of a partisan as, as Cora Diamond is. Um, I mean, I basically accept ordinary language philosophy in the sense that I think if we're trying to say what a term means, we're trying to say what we mean by it when we exchange it in ordinary context. Like, I think that's the best way to elucidate the meaning of a term. Maybe the only way really to find out, you know, explore what we actually do already mean by it, you know, rather than what it should mean or what as a, as a platonic form, what it is or something like that. Yeah. Uh, But I don't, I'm not into the strict segregation like the positivists and all that of metaphysical from ordinary talk or something like that, or I'm not willing to consign philosophy as a whole to a non-ordinary and thus nonsensical status. I think the words in philosophy, first of all, they come from ordinary usage. And second of all, if you want to figure out what those words mean, you have to bring them back to ordinary usage. I don't feel in my own life like me, the philosopher, is completely detached from me like the ordinary agent trying to walk, run around the world. You know, I, I don't feel like my vocabulary, I use the same terms in both contexts many a time, and I don't feel like I'm sliding into a completely different use or a kind of metaphysical theory or something like that, you know? This is very interesting. You know, I'm starting to see... I know now where we're different. I mean, I really do. I mean, I... I it's this, and and this is. I didn't expect to go here. I'm. Uh, this is wonderful in the sense it's completely spontaneous, and it's not wasn't on the on the menu. Um, I think the philosophical the philosophical mode is very unnatural. Um, and I'm very. I I think it has a very. I think it has a much more limited use than philosophers think it does. Okay. Um, Especially in areas having to do with value, right? And with areas that areas that are essentially normative. Um, okay. And um, um, not only do I think this intellectually, but I feel it in the course of my life. I mean, there is nothing that annoys people more. And I'm t- I mean, well-meaning people. I don't mean people that are trying to to win something, right? I'm talking and trying to find anything they can to to sort of. Um, win with, but I mean earnest people. Um, there's nothing more that annoys people more than when you're trying to have an, a, a conversation about about real feelings or real experiences or relationships or whatever, and somebody starts pulling. You know, I, I get if somebody's not, when somebody starts sort of you know, pulling out philosophical arguments. About why I shouldn't eat my lunch, I've got, right. I start to get very angry. I'm just like, you are abusing a certain kind of 
yeah. uh, a certain kind of technical apparatus yeah. um, and employing it in places where no, where A, it doesn't belong, and B, where nobody freaking wants it. Okay, Right, and I, this, this was a factor in my breakup of my marriages, man. It's like if I'm going to yeah, take people will divorce you over this, right? Yes, I mean, yes, because it is a way of being a fucking asshole. It seems. Yeah. To me. Okay. Um, yes. And 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 I and look, I think it has its place, but there's nothing to me that's more annoying than the person who leads their life in an overly con- self-consciously, philosophically rigorous kind of way. I really, I, I dislike the application of these theories to ordinary life in a way that strikes me as very ham fisted. Right. Right. Maybe, well, maybe I, that's a difference, but you see much more of integration. Me yeah. a lot. And, and in your sense, that sense, you're much more like an ancient Greek thinker, right? I mean, I view philosophy as a highly specific technical activity yeah. that has a very limited series of uses. Right. And that for the most part, when it goes outside of them, it not only gets things wrong, but, but alienates people. Right. Um, right. um, you could take someone like Dewey, right? Who is, I mean, he has the same kind of misgivings. And he, what he, but he asserts like, okay, so if this stuff doesn't like help us in our lives, if it doesn't change our lives together or something in some practically useful way, then let's just forget it. And, and the words mean, you know, whatever gets us to that point or something like that. If we're evaluating meaning for Dewey, we're like evaluating how this projects out usefully into the future or something like that. Like you could philosophically argue that philosophy should be more grounded, more practical, more human, uh, that the kind of, I mean, I would like argue with Kierkegaard, for example, or somebody like that, like it's gotten way too abstract in cable or something. We need to bring this back to the concrete conditions of our lives. Like, but that seems to me within the philosophical discourse. Right. I, I guess in my own life, I kind of felt that, I mean, it feels natural to me or inevitable, right? Like, or it feels like very me-ish. Like I'm just going to, so any like political conversation from very early in my life is liable to drive me into like very general normative questions. It feels natural. It feels like we're still discussing the same thing, but at a, at a higher level or something or a different level or more generalized way. And then, then we can bring that back to specific moments or issues or something. And, you know, and I guess, but I was like kind of bereft or stranded in 87 or whatever by this distinction, which ends up condemning philosophy as a whole as meaningless, you know, or over or whatever. I don't know. I, I'm not sure we're going to really, this is pretty well, this is pretty rich meta philosophy. Well, that, and that I don't disagree with. I mean, I, that's that's the, that's the point at which I get off the, the bus, right? I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm teaching philosophy, right? I'm writing it. Right. Um, 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 so yeah. obviously, I don't agree with Wittgenstein that that everything is is gone. But I, this deep, deep question about you know, you can go two ways with this, right? And and it seems like you go one way and I go the other. One way is to say, look, yes, philosophy has become this very specific, technical, of limited though powerful use. Um, very unnatural sort of speech. Um, and so we should curtail it. And then when we do all the other things, we should sort of, you know, be more instinctive, more intuitive, more sort of, you know, uh, integrated in the way we approach it. Or you could say, well, what that shows is that philosophy has to be re- brought back. Yes. We need to bring, and in a sense, yes. I guess maybe extensionally, they wind up being somewhat the same. Yes. Right? Um, it's um, sort of verbal, right? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, one more thing just while we're on this more general footing, right? And because I also think that this is another sort of hinge point, which maybe explain, may explain the differences between us. I'm just curious how you feel about Hume. <laughs> and the reason I say this is because I actually think that not in terms of their way they do anything, but actually in terms of the role, the function, Hume and Wittgenstein are very similar. And so I'm wondering if you have similar feelings about Hume that you have about Wittgenstein, and not the personal stuff, right. but in terms of the impact of the philosophies being ultimately negative. Um, do you feel the same way about Hume? And I'll say why in a minute, but I first want to hear how you feel about him yeah. without, me, without me saying it. Well, I love Hume in the sense I love reading Hume. Uh, he writes he might, very well, yes. Yeah, he sure. writes so beautifully. Yeah, yeah. Um, I read Hume... I, I mean, I, I haven't quite thought about Hume with regard to all these issues, but I would read Hume as, yeah, I guess that's true. Like he, he, he distinguishes philosophical from ordinary uses of, even uses of the same terms and stuff like that. Uh, and he distinguishes himself as a philosopher from himself as an ordinary agent, right? Like, and he elevates the ordinary, he says the ordinary yes. agent must always take precedent. Yes. Um, and and that that the, that philosophy is what you do in the study, and when you leave it, you do you do humanity, and they're right. not the same, right? Right. And my impulse right there is to say, no, man, you've got to bring those together, or you're just sitting in hypocrisy, or you're just sitting in uh, contradiction. Now that I don't get. Why is it? Hypo- in other words, why is it? Like, Here, let me say what that- I think. Let me say what I think it is, and you can tell me why it's really hypocrisy, right? Look. What Hume, is, what Hume is trying to do is say, look, this is how far a rational, a rationalistic, small r, rationalistic analysis can get you, right? Right. And if you look at how far it gets you, it tends to get you ultimately to skeptical points, right? Now, yeah. you have a decision at that point. You can either, in a sense, double down and stick to your guns which is going to cause you both to think and act very oddly. Okay. <laughs> or, yeah. or, or you can recognize the li- that, that you've reached the limits of human reason and thus place that kind of analysis in its proper place in the overall landscape of a human life, right? It's not that there's no reason or call for self-reflection, for, rash- for su- rational self-examination. The point is that one has to recognize at what point it ceases to be fruitful and now starts to yes. be. And, and, and I don't say, why is that hypo- hypocritical? Well, I mean, just in a very direct sense, does he doubt or believe induction? You know what I mean? And, he believed, and, and he believes that you can, you can, he believes that you can only rationally ground induction up to a certain point after which there is an element of either simply instinctive or habitual or natural. Um, and they had a very crude conception of the natural then obviously. Um, and, and that one, one has to understand that that's the kind of being one is right. Yes. In other words, it seems to me that the, 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 the other view has a has a very mistaken uh, sort of human anthropology, right? It has it really it, it it assumes we're far more rational than we are, right? 
And it assumes that far more of the things we do are rationally scrutable than actually are, right? Yeah, but I, okay. I mean, of course you don't want to prematurely say that something is not rationally scrutable. No, right? no. Okay. Yeah, and maybe Hume, I mean, Hume went really far and really convincingly on showing that it's not or whatever, like with induction or whatever it might be. Or causality um, or, or yeah. personal identity or... Yes. or Right, or anything else, <laughs> uh, almost, or anything philosophical. Um, so, I mean, I guess if I was t- trying to tell Hume what I would wish he would do, it'd be, okay. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. What? Yeah. How would you prefer to use what you do think Hume is correct about in terms of... Yes. And I, I mean, I try to do this in entanglements or whatever. Okay, so like, say his sincere belief is that the order of nature is regular. Uh, you know, things follow one another uh, predictably, you know, according to the principles of induction or whatever, probably, probability and so on. Um, okay, you are obliged, if that is your considered opinion, as an agent, you're obliged as a philosopher to try to work out how that can be, okay? You, I mean, your task as a philosopher is, in, in my opinion, maybe to give philosophical underpinnings to what you actually do believe. Now, you might have to uh, retreat on the methodology a little bit. In other words, okay, if, if you're thinking like this, it's the hyper-rigorous methodology of deductive reasoning that led you to this uh, skeptical conclusion which contradicts your entire experience as a human being, uh, then you're going to have to fix the rigorous reasoning, either de-rigorize it, like come up with a different philosophical method, or really work that rigorous method in another direction, which I feel like you probably can, actually, uh, because you're David freaking Hume, you know, or whatever. Like, uh, So I would say, like, ask yourself what you sincerely believe, and then regard it as your philosophical obligation to describe how that can be the case, you know, or uh, how that can be justified. Isn't that exactly what Hume does? And what he does shows is that how it can be the case is only partly answered by rational analysis, right? Yes. Um, um, And I agree with that. And in other words, it almost feels to me like you feel like that. Look, Hume and Kant represent sort of the opposite inclinations, right? When Hume hits a skeptical paradox, he thinks that's where philosophizing ends. Kant thinks that's where it begins, right? True. And for Kant, then, what happens is because Kant um, either isn't smart enough or he just agrees to actually defeat the Humean skeptical um, yes. descent, right? He goes transcendental. Yes. Which I would argue actually... In the, at the end of the day, answers nothing, right? I agree. I think it's ultimately a, a gigantic engage, a, a, a exercise in folly, right? Agree. Um, um, that's not to say that I don't think that there's a gazillion things that are really interesting that come out of Kant that are pr- yeah. really useful and you can go all over the place with. I yes. just systematically, 
I don't see how he ever overcomes Hume just by going right. transcendental because there's something large artificial about the transcendental move, right? That shows um, you how devastating Hume is, right? Right. I mean, like, I'm not sitting here answering Hume either. But, but he, I almost feel like, like, like you, you're saying is that philosophy does need to bulldoze through that that skeptical barrier and that it should not take the special skeptical barrier as a limit. And maybe this is the reason why you like a lot of this sort of continental and more the stuff that's in the idealistic tradition, even though you're not an idealist and, and you like yes. substantive metaphysics and all that. But I guess that while I respect the fact that you want to do that, I don't see why that makes the person who takes the human attitude hypocritical, right? Um, well, I mean, hypocritical just in the sense, like he just says it, you know, as an agent, I am quite satisfied as to these truths. As a philosopher, I want to know the basis of the inferences. Right. Uh, is he what's, too- what's wrong with the idea that, look, philosophically, I can show that my belief that I exist as, a, as, a, as, a, as an enduring self um, is not rationally sustainable. Yeah. Nonetheless, when I walk out of here, I'm going to interact with everybody as if I am an, 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 an enduring individual person. I'm going to hold people responsible as if they were enduring. Now, what does that show? That shows that um, uh, human beings don't believe things and do things solely on the basis of what can be rationally demonstrated. It shows yes. that we're not simply rational beings. Now, why yes. is that hypocritical as opposed to um, really understanding yourself pretty damn well, right? Um, as opposed to <laughs> pretending that you're a Cartesian ego – with a platonic mind right inside of it. Right. So philosophers should stop pretending that as they do philosophy. They, okay. Oh, I see. You're saying, I see. You're saying that you want philosophy to become less rationalistic. Yes. And then it would get get more mileage out of it then. Yes. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. I mean, rationality strands Hume or whatever. Yeah. 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 No, look, I, I think, yeah. Yeah. Now I think he needs to compromise. He needs to yeah. – ordinary language philosophy might be able to help a little bit, you know? You know, there's an interesting parallel here. I just spoke with Massimo Piliucci not long ago, and um, there's an interesting parallel here with science, right? People who have a narrower, tighter view of what constitutes science, people who have a broader view, and they get into these fierce arguments, and you realize actually probably extensionally they are all have the same views. It's just that – for this guy, science is this very tight package, and then all this other stuff is, is sort of not science, but it's fine, right? And then right. for the other guy, it's like, in other words, it's fine not to be science, right? And then for the other guy, no, science is much broader, and so much more things count as science, and that's, that's fine also. And but it's, it's not people- fine not to be science. It's not fine not to be science because science, for a lot of people, is kind of the exclusive outlet of the truth. Right, so, so you- typ- yeah, typically those people, though, other than the sort of the demented ones, right? They simply broaden the concept of science so much that now everything, you know, like someone like Lawrence Krauss thinks that mathematics is science. He thinks that morality is science. He thinks that all of these things are science. And that's all, that's just the result of expanding his notion of science. Now where it includes any epistemic activity, right? Okay. Um, 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 There is a type of person that has a narrow view of science and then also says everything outside is shit. Right. Um, and those are very weird people, right? When you true, deal with those people, true. you're just like, oh, you know, they're usually socially very awkward and, and sort of. Um, 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 well, no, I hear people informally doing that all the time. Yeah. I mean, I hear professors doing that all the time, kind of like, you know, if it's not science, it's not respectable, you know? And plus, and if it is science, 
you better accept it right now, okay? Uh, It's becoming very dogmatic, which is, I guess, disturbing. It almost is sort of Asimovian, right? I mean, you know, if you remember, if you read Foundation, um, if you well, anyway, for those who have read Foundation, you know, it it gets the 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 decline of galactic civilization gets to the point to which nobody actually remembers how anything works anymore, and scientists turn into a priesthood. Right, the manuals are now the scriptures, right? And they follow them, but they actually don't understand, right? <laughs> what any of it says. And yeah. um, um, I almost feel like we're getting that way with science now. I mean, people invoke science as if it's like a divine authority. Yeah, absolutely. Do you accept science? Yeah, yeah. And it's I've been asked like, that as if science always points in one direction, or as yeah. if science's conclusions were ever anything but provisional. And um, let me ask so. so I think we've we, we came we're doing pretty well in terms of general orientations and sort of trying to get an understanding of of why sort of as a whole you kind of reject or dislike this approach to philosophy. You really what it comes down to it sounds to me is like you think that part of the issue here is that people are drawing too narrow a picture of philosophy as a specific technical activity, and thus. Yes, having to end up with sort of Humean or Wittgensteinian kind of conclusion, where you'd like yes. to broaden it. In that sense, I do think you have a more of a classical or or, or, or Greco-Roman kind of conception of philosophy. Maybe so. Um, um, maybe let's talk at a time we have left a little specifically though now about Wittgenstein, okay. and so because there's a few things I think he did that are of such tremendous significance that. I don't see how you could ever conclude historically that he was anything but an absolutely essential figure. And so okay. there's two things I'm going to just talk about in particular. This is what I emailed you about, right? One is anti-representationalism, okay? And the second is how to cope, how to deal with skepticism. And, okay. and so... Did, will you say what, what you think he means, like what, what his anti-representationalism... Right, so, so, so yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So... Um, um, Here's a standard view, and it's a view, by the way, that that goes well into our our days. Okay, and so you know when you and I were were in graduate school and college and grad school, um, and that is that the meanings of the that the that the meanings the meaning in language ultimately is a function of meaning in the mind. Okay, right. So where 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 where, where language gets its content is from a prior mental content. Right. This he is just. This is Jerry Fodor's mental ease, right? Yes. Um, um, this is pretty much all cognitive science, right? Um, um, it's, it's, it, it, and in my view, it is one of the hugest wrong terms philosophy has ever taken. It has basically made the last 40 to 50 years of philosophy of mind almost entirely worthless um, um, and useless. You know- um, now, I and think, Wittgenstein is the solution to it. He explains okay. the private language argument explains okay. why none of it works. Right now, do you not? Do, do you not? I don't think you're a fan of representationalism. No. Right? I mean, so I, usually when I'm attacking representationalism, I kind of mean as a theory of mind. I'm more like in the empiricist, rationalist uh, history. Well, I know, think it actually refutes that too. Yeah, right? you know um, where um, you're. The, you know, to see an object is to have an image, you know, or an idea, of, of, you know, like a picture, a representation. That's in the right. Mind. That's right. Um, and I completely reject that. Yeah. And actually, I think, and and then 
the way he applies this to the linguistic situation is really fascinating and really, and I, and I'm basically, I agree with the move that is, and I like to, you know, the, yeah. I mean, first of all, he, there are accomplishments here, especially in the investigations. Yeah. The family resemblance stuff. Okay. Fun. That's another area. Yeah. I mean, up until then people had this ridiculous view that, you know, every word had a set of necessary and sufficient conditions yeah. for its application. I got to give it up for that, man. That's and then you find out, wait a minute, no words are like that except for like three words in geometry. Yeah, exactly. But, but just to okay, so, them, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I'm, I'm representationalism. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm going to let you keep formulating or whatever. I guess what worries me about it. And maybe again, I'm getting this from Rory a little bit. It's, it, I want to empty the representation into the external world. And I feel like he wants to intensify it in a certain way. Like that, in other words, like there's no, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what his position on this is, but if, if there is a position exactly, but or well, he, the position is that meaning is ultimately public, not private. Right. And so because, because, at the heart of meaning, at the heart of concept formation, at the heart, is, is our rule-governed activities, right? Um, and that you cannot follow a rule in isolation from a community of agreements yeah. of, 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 that consists of sets of agreements, right? And yeah. so you can't internalize meaning because meaning is ultimately public. And so the relevant place where you're going to do your sort of analysis is going to ultimately be sociological. It's going to be out in the community and in their right. practices and customs, not in the internals of the, I mean, these people yes. really think that, I mean, you read Fodor, right? He really thinks that there are like things inside your head that intrinsically mean something, right? Yeah. And, and Wittgenstein shows why that it cannot be right. It's not just that it's wrong. It couldn't be right because of the ultimately rule-governed nature of, of, of meaning and because of the ultimately public nature of rules, right? And I, I think he's convincing on that. I really do. Yeah. And, that's, and that's rather important. I, I think he could be clearer about it, too. Like, I would like him to flatly state his conclusions, you know, but I, uh, I understand it's against his religion. Well, let me ask you, you know what? Let's take a detour on that for a minute because this, this, I don't think this will take very long. So I really like that, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. I mean, it seems yeah. to me – look, talk about not being hypocritical, right? Um, this is the opposite of being hypocritical. If okay. you think that a lot of philosophical problems are essentially mistakes in that they proceed on the basis of a false assumption, right? then the last thing you should expect such a person to do is make a bunch of philosophical proclamations. In other words, the fact that he asks mostly, mostly asks questions. Yes. And to the extent that he gives answers, 70% of them are intended to be incorrect. Right. In my mind, that speaks to me of a person who um, deeply understand that there are not conclusive answers to these things because the questions either may be ill-formed or ill-understood. Right, but and so the you, best thing to do then is to ask them in a provocative way so that the reader engages with the question. Right. I can see that. And But you just reconstructed his positions 
in a fairly clear, definite, attacking this tradition sort of yes. way. Yes. Uh, and everyone has been doing that with Wittgenstein ever since. And often in contradictory modes, okay, like they disagree completely about what the conclusions are. Uh, and I just think he could have done a little more of that. Like it seems to me a little bit disingenuous. You know, like he, 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 I feel he has conclusions. He had very strong views, but then when he writes, he acts as if he doesn't, is what yeah. you sort of don't like about it. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, fair right, enough. But, like, but I, back to, back to the actual stuff, like yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, like, the way I was thinking about this back in the day, anyway, I want out of the social, I want out of the linguistic into the material external world. And I'm not sure I'm seeing that in Wittgenstein, right? Like it's all a matter of social practices, language games. Whereas, I, I mean, I want meanings that extend into the world. Now, I'm not sure that anything he says is quite incompatible with that, you know, but just the picture is relentlessly social and, and, relentlessly limited to language in terms of meanings and so on. Well, what do we, what do you mean by the world? I mean, yeah, I mean, look, he wants to take it out of the head. Yes. Put it into the social practices, right? Yes. Now you say, well, I wanted to go beyond the social practices to the world. What do you mean? To the, to the trees and the rocks and the lakes and stuff. Right. So we talked about that entanglements. I guess I just find that ultimately obscure, right? Because in part, I do accept the sort of basic Solarzian distinction between the scientific and the manifest image. And I, I do think, I think that the scientific image tells us a lot, right? But what it doesn't do is it doesn't tell us anything about the sort of the, the, uh, the essentially teleological practices of people, right? The, the practices, the practices that in a sense have a normative dimension as all of our practices do our epistemic practices are obviously our political practices are right. And, and, and Sellers actually says that the normative normativity is sort of like is the fundamental quality of the, of the social. That's partly why he's an anti-reductionist and the, the, the two images have to be kind of superimposed to get a complete picture because they have an entirely different internal structure, right? They have an entirely different set of fundamental um, um, principles and entities. I think we've right? argued about this. But I disagree with this. I mean, the fundamental pr- pr- and principle, the fundamental entities, if you want to call that, of the manifest image are persons, right? The fundamental entities in 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 uh, the scientific image is going to be some sort of subatomic particle, right? Um, and and what you get from that is an entirely different. Um, 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 I don't see how you're going to get moral practices out of trees and rocks, right? Well, you, you're not going to get any moral practices without stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, you're going to have to build some buildings and stuff like this. You know, you're going to have to sail across the lake to meet somebody. That's true, but that doesn't mean that the lake is in any way in, in, in interestingly involved in, for example, the um, – the rules and guidelines that we set up for uh, how people are allowed to behave uh, when they go to the lake, right? I mean, <laughs> well, the lake is involved in the meaning of the word lake. The, the, yes, of course. Yeah. Yes, and the word refers to lakes. Yeah, and and you know, language has a ba- the basic function of language. If you ask me, is probably adaptation to an external environment. All right, so. Um, 
So are you a reductionist? Do you think that the social reduces to some material set of descriptors? I do. I do. Like we're material objects, just like trees and lakes. We'll have to talk about that another time because I'm a, I'm a very, very enthusiastic anti-reductionist. Um, 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 and I don't think that the I'm not proposing a reduction. I mean, but I, 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 when I'm, I'm proposing, I, I'm proposing ontological equivalence. Like, you know, persons and social practices are on the same ontological level as lakes and trees. Yeah. We'll have uh, to talk about that on a separate yeah. occasion because you know, one of the things that I would say is uh, one of the arguments I would give against that is that ultimately I think I can show that, argue that, um, reasons are distinct from causes, right? And 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 that that once we understand sort of how reasons operate, we'll understand that the sphere in which they operate is a very different kind of sphere than the sphere um um okay. of, of causality. But we talk about it another time. It's way off on this. So that's um, that's two different ways that events come to occur through reasons and, and through causes? Well more more that when 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 somebody gives a reason for doing something that's a that's he's doing a very different kind of thing than when he when he gives the cause of something when he when he identifies the cause of something okay now since davidson reasons and causes have gotten collapsed together davidson is famous for arguing that reasons are causes yeah, this yeah. is what got us the whole in my view rabbit hole of of um of uh reductionist and 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 materialist psychology in ways that I think is a okay. bad idea. We'll talk about it another time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you we we both kind of like the anti-representationalism maybe we you 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 wish that he'd gone further. You don't think that it should stop at the social. Yes, that's fine. But you do accept that sort of this was a valuable contribution. Certainly yes. we both disagree with the mentalistic kind of approach to um, um, uh, these a lot of these philosophical questions. Let's ask about, so the other one is uncertainty, right? That, that one you really kind of dissed in our, yeah. in our exchange. And in my view, I find that funny because you like G.E. Moore so much. I do. In my view, uncertainty basically is simply articulating what Moore left unstated and providing a kind of a frame in which it makes sense. And I also think it is the only approach to skepticism that I've ever seen that I actually think works. So okay. what, what do you dislike about uncertainty? All right. Well, one thing I'll say is like, it's quite typical of Wittgenstein interpretation that you think he's basically agreeing with more or supplementing. He's more. fleshing out what, what, what more is yeah. left largely implicit. Yeah. And I think that he spends the whole book attacking more. Uh, but it's, you know, that you could come through a book this size and not know that, not be certain that whether he is, the whole book is devoted to elaborating and agreeing, spelling out and correcting more, or the whole book is devoted to destroying more. That doesn't seem to me like, uh, well, it's not how I would want to write a philosophy book, like leaving people with questions like that. Like, are you saying P or not P at the end about the whole theme of the book? Right. But you may well be right. Uh, this is so, I mean, the pro, look, I hate to saddle philosophers with this, right? I mean, look, we just mentioned sellers, right? Everyone from Rorty to the Churchlands claims sellers, right? Now, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that can't be, right? I mean, um, 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 and, and is that, a, is that, a, is that a fault of sellers or is that a fault that people, people are so fucking partisan? <laughs> Even in intellectual circles, yes. that they want to claim things, 
and rather than say, wow, this stuff is really hard and because it's so hard and the issues are so sort of fundamental and at a certain level yeah. abstract, there's a lot of ways you could go on it, right? I mean, it's not, it's not okay. obvious, right? Instead, so, they say, oh, yes, it's obvious in this one direction. So now it looks like there are 15 completely contradictory interpretations of sellers, but that's not seller's fault. That's the imperfect right. fault, it seems to me. That, that's true. Although I feel like Wittgenstein is a particularly bad case of this. You know, you can't tell whether he's saying the same thing in the Tractatus as the philosophical investigations or just the opposite. No. Uh, you know, you no. can't tell. You know, the disagreements are fundamental, and they're it's true of Kant also. I mean, text. It's true of Kant. The whole analytic continental split comes out of a disagreement of the disagreement over how to interpret Kant, right? I mean, well, um, I wish Kant had been clearer too. Yeah, you know, I just thought, so, not much is going to be left if you're going to saddle the author with contradictory yeah, sure. interpretations. There's not okay. going to be much left, right? I mean, <laughs> all right. So, but let me ask you this. All right. Yeah, I, I'm G. E. Moore. Yeah, I really am, man. Like the reincarnation baby. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going. And here's a hand, and here is another. Now, I say I know that. Does Wittgenstein agree or not? Yes. Yes. He does. Yes. I okay. So it's but it's a non-empirical. No, I tell you, no, listen. It's if you a, want me it's to a run, logical. If you want me to run what I think the argument on uncertainty is. I can do it in like three minutes. It's actually I think very okay. simple, and I actually think it's um. It's actually somewhat Carnapian, uh, the logic of it, right? Um, 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 so look, here's what Moore says. Moore says, here's a hand, there's a hand. Now, it's not as if Moore is not aware of the illusion arguments, right? Oh, yeah. It's not as if he's not aware of them. Part of his point, what he said, and I think he actually says this explicitly, um, um, is that um, the problem is that all the none of the arguments, in other words, all the arguments, none of the arguments against it are as as compelling as the thing it, that there are arguments against, right? I mean, and that that's sort of the appeal to common sense. Yes, but I think that Wittgenstein offers a way to make the appeal to common sense not simply a hand wave. Okay, because look, the inevitable response is to just point out to Moore all the fifteen thousand ways in which your common sense goes wrong, right? So, you know, you can't just sort of hold that up as a totem and then walk walk away, which is why I think most people think that ultimately the paper is a failure. Not because it couldn't work, but because it's got too hand-wavy of an appeal to common sense. He doesn't sort of unpack, okay, well, wait a minute. What is it about this that makes it more plausible than any of the arguments you could ever amass against it? What is, how, yeah. what, what's going on there? Okay, and I think Wittgenstein shows it. So, I think I think more as a t- by the way as attacking Hume right in the sense the way we framed it he's attacking so, yes, yes yes he's saying like he's plopping for the agent rather than the philosopher and he's right. saying like, all the knowledge is occurring on this level right uh, and this and this is good enough you right. know like that that kind of stuff yeah and I think though that that Hume is also there's a substantial disagreement on the interpretation of Hume. I tend towards the Norman Kemp Smith interpretation that humans ultimately should be viewed as a naturalist and not a skeptic, in which case Hume should be read more like Thomas Reed and a lot less like uh, a lot less like Bark- a lot less like Barclay, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and so I think that actually Hume agrees with more. I think actually. Um, okay, that, I mean that's that's not implausible. Um, of course, um, Hume calls himself a skeptic over and over again, but you yeah, know. and I think that's unfortunate. But I do think if you actually look at the structure of the treatise. 
um, that it's pretty clear that the uh, the section on the, of the understanding is being set up for a reductio that then gets cashed out in the pr- section on the passions, right? Um, um, it leaves um, you in common sense reality in some yeah, way. Yeah, and this, this is, this is, but people have been going back and forth. Kemp Smith wrote his book in the 50s and, and people, it's sort of, this was the reigning view of Hume for a while and then it came back around. Now he's really a skeptic after. I, I, I don't get into history of ideas fights. Okay. Uh, fine. If it, that's not Hume, but it's Hume Star. Hume Star is really great. Okay. Um, but here's what I think Wittgenstein's sort of the argument is, and that is that um, skepticism makes the mistake of treating all the propositions or beliefs within a system as having the same character and as, as being on the same sorts of grounds, right? Okay. The whole thing about without, yeah. the hin- without the hinges, the door doesn't open, right? And so you can't have doors without hinges. So if we're going to talk about doors, then certain things have to stand fast, right? Right. Um, um, and, you know, if I'm going to talk about the solar system, right, I can doubt whether Saturn um, is older than, let's say, Jupiter. Right. But I can't doubt that there are planets and still be talking about planets. OK. And, and, in other words, in other well, words, there, there, there is a pra- you can't words, talk. You can't you can't doubt that there are planets and not be talking about planets. Right. I mean. What? You're talking about planets when you say, I doubt there are planets. I can't engage in a discourse without certain things standing fast, right? The idea that justifications go all the way down to the bottom, that's just your old school foundationalism, and it's false, right? And the reason it's false... I read Wittgenstein as as asserting that over and over. He's saying the opposite of that. In order for the doors to open, the, the hinges have to stay put, right? Over and over again, he says things like, I could not prove it, so I didn't know it. I couldn't produce decisive reasons, could I? And that's a conceptual condition on knowledge. Like, I think he has, like, he's like a screeching justificationist in this. Uh, he's exactly the opposite of that. He's right, well, exactly that's the opposite. He's an anti-foundationalist. He's one of the most prominent anti-foundationalists in the history of philosophy. The whole point is that Certain things have to stand fast in order for an inquiry to even take place. And what the skeptic does is, in a sense, undermine the very basis for the inquiry one is involved in, right? Um, um, the skeptic mistakenly – and look, this is sort of similar to a somewhat Carnapian point, right? And that is that, you know, once you're, once you're, within a, once you're talking within a frame of reference, right – there are certain questions you cannot ask because the, the, the very frame presupposes that, that they're there, right? Um, um, which is why he says when you ask external questions, you kind of misunderstand what kind of a question you're asking. And what Hume is suggesting is that the skeptic misunderstands um, the beliefs that he's challenging. He thinks that the belief that there are planets is like the belief that um, Saturn has six moons, right? Um, I think so too, though. No, but I, but I don't. I mean, I mean, relative relative to discourse on planets, that there are planets is a hinge proposition. Well, no, I mean, there there could be a universe in which you can talk about planets, but there are no planets. Uh, you know, I mean, 
Wait a minute. I, I, you, you, look, but look, this is some of the, this, this is why, this is why, empirical proposition. this is why it's stupid to go to an astronomer and say, well, how the hell can you be talking about the solar system when you can't even prove that material objects exist at all, right? <laughs> and what he's going to say is, excuse me, first of all, get the fuck off my lawn. Yeah, second, yeah. Of all, second of all, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm engaged in a practice. That practice is the practice of talking about our solar system. And guess right. what? It presupposes that yeah. the material things exist and thus... That question is not relevant to the discourse. I, That's true. In other words, Vickens, the point Vickens is making on thirty is the fundamental anti-foundationalist point. It's that reasons have to come to an end. He says that explicitly, right? But at some point, reasons come to an end. And that's so because practices presuppose, have to presuppose that certain things stand fast. Otherwise, you can't have practices. Right, but I think one reason they stand fast quite often, is that they're true, obviously true. Like, here is a hand, and here is another. Or there are planets. Okay? His like point that, is that, his, that look, the, skeptic, the skeptic can challenge that. Of course he, he can. He can start running an illusion argument. And, and, and look, I agree with Hume. I don't think, ultimately, the questions are answerable head-on. If you go head-on, the skeptic wins every single I disagree. I mean, I, but I think there's a, a lot of, I'd like to see a lot I'd of like work. See, I'd like to see you produce either yourself or in anybody else an actual successful head on conclusive refutation of the skeptic. I don't think it can be done. Robert knows it didn't think. I mean, this yeah, has I been going on for, for hundreds of years. I'm surprised that you actually think that. I think that more refuted skepticism. I think here's a hand, Look, here's if another take, if you take him at face value, he did nothing of the sort. He just begged every question. Okay, I understand why you say that, man. Uh, and what Wittgenstein is doing, I think, is unpacking what he's saying. Look, no, 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 don't dismiss Hume's more so fast. Yeah, he kind of said it in a hand-wavy way, and he made a kind of a fool of himself with some of the things he said about what he knows for certain. And it turns out, actually, he's like, I know for certain there's something outside the window. It turned out he was in a different room, and there was nothing outside the window. Um, um, what? Yeah, I don't know, man. So the point just is, is though, is that, Look, if you take if you take more deadpan, it's a fucking laughable joke. Okay, nobody thinks it succeeded except for you, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> however, in my view, what uncertainty is doing is saying, look, here's how you can interpret more in a non-hand wavy way. Okay. Right. And that is that what Moore is pointing out when he says that the belief that the hand is, is real is, is more is stronger than any of the arguments against it. Yes. That's because the proposition that there is a hand in ordinary discourse is a kind of hinge proposition, right? Because yes, as okay. well, if we're talking about people and we're talking about the things they do, they do things with their hands, that all presupposes that there are hands, right? Just yeah. like if I'm doing science at all, exactly. it presu- presumes that there are material objects. That's why for a skeptic to go to an astronomer and say, you need to stop what you're doing until you prove the material world exists is foolish, right? Because yes, but, it rejects but, but, the idea that there, are, that there are any practices. Right, okay, I agree. Now, now when, that's it. That's the whole thing. Okay, good. Now, when, when Wittgenstein dresses more, he relentlessly points out that Moore is still subject to skeptical doubts, okay? That here is a hand and here is another still... Because of the way he formulates it. Right. And then then Wittgenstein says, if he can't prove it, 
in the face of skeptical doubts. He doesn't know it at all. Okay, now that is to, I mean, it's ambiguous whether he says that. Why does he also say that to deny that I have a hand? If someone seriously asked me that, I would think he was a halfwit. Right, well, that's what Moore says, too. Okay. Right, but in Wittgenstein, there's actually an explanation of why that would be the case, and that's because the person would misunderstand the type of inquiry he's engaged yes. in. Right? Moore doesn't what, explain why. Wittgenstein does. He, uh, he asserts that Moore cannot know that here is a hand and here is another on the grounds that knowledge is a concept that requires rigorous justification or deductive proof even. All right? So... I think like he is bringing to Moore the most traditional and for him, really, it should be the most nonsensical theory of justice that you ever heard, a theory of uh, justification or theory of knowledge that you ever heard. Uh, in other words, he's bringing this philosophical concept of knowledge to bear, ignoring how we actually use the word no, okay, which I think quite encompasses here is a hand and here is another. Uh, and you know, regarding knowledge as this technical philosophical term instead of an ordinary word that we exchange all day anyway. All right? So what is your answer? Okay, so, okay, fine. So let's say you don't, you don't accept either of Wittgenstein's effort to sort of fill in what Moore leads out, or if you want to take the view, as you seem to do, that he's actually opposed to Moore, which I don't, I don't agree with. Yeah, okay. Um, but we can fight that to, to death, and there's no point in it. Yeah. I'll just leave it out there. But then you tell me on your own view how you cash out Moore's claim that um, the claim that there's a hand is more credible than any of the arguments against it. Now I say to you, no, it isn't. Now what? Now what are you going to do? No, it isn't. Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't mean this as a threat. Yes, it is. No, it isn't over and over again. Well, I might slap you. And I don't mean this as a threat. But you, but you okay. know what I mean, right? I mean, I might, look, I might keep waving it around, man. It's I might cheap. Keep, uh, it's cheap, though, because everybody knows that the whole point of the philosophical inquiry, right? Even Barclay thinks you have a hand in that sense. Okay. I'm asking you whether you really believe there's a hand here or not. And if you really don't, Barclay okay, really believes there's a hand. Barclay believes there's a hand. Right. He just disagrees with a certain analysis of what that means. Right. Okay. And so it's not enough to just sort of, you know, wave your hand. I mean, that's, it's cheap, man. It's cheap when we're doing philosophy. Now, you want to say, well, philosophy is just like everything else. No, it isn't. And people don't walk around doubting this stuff. Well, sure they do. I mean, you know, they might have a, you know, people think themselves into the dream argument at a young age and things like that. Um, people walk around, other than very sick, mentally ill people, people walk around on the basis seriously doubting whether they have hands or not. No. And that's, that's actually my point. You're not doubting it. I'm not doubting it. Analysis, the doubting skeptical it. analysis of it is, un, but then the skeptical analysis of that is unnatural. It's not normal. It's extraordinary. And if you're going to engage in it, then you acknowledge you're doing, engaging in something extraordinary. So there's, it's not an answer to say, oh, wait a minute. As if <laughs> Barclay doesn't know that, right? I mean, I, look, if you, an uncharitable interpretation of Moore, in my view, makes Moore out to be pretty damn stupid. You think, right, it does. You think Moore that you don't know, that Barclay doesn't know that? And I don't think Moore knew that. I think Moore knew very well that Barclay knows that. I just think that Moore thought that he got, could get more mileage out of simply sort of, sort of gesturing that way. Yes. Than I think you can, right? And especially given that at Moore's day, 
a kind of Barclayanism was reassert, re, re, reinsurge, asserging mm-hmm. and, in the form of the positivist, right? That's true. And so it was important to not just sort of go like this because, look, if that would have worked, Barclay would have stayed away. But he came back in the form of Air and all these other guys, right? And so you can't just wave your hand again. Now you okay, have to so, say something. I mean, all right, the way I would try, I mean, I don't know. Like, this is pretty deep, though. I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, Barclay knows that here's a hand and here's another. Moore knows it. Wittgenstein, too. And that's where we have to start. Okay. Like that's okay. There's a datum. We know that here is a hand and here is another. Right. But now, philosophy is interesting. How do you know that can be the case? Philosophy is interesting. How do you know that? And what is it to know that? Okay. Well, we do know it would be my view. And now it's philosophy's task to describe how we know it. What does right. it mean to say we know it? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and so one way of trying to show how we know it, is the way that goes from Descartes through to Locke, right? Um, um, who are much more similar than they are different, right? Yes. In terms of the basic picture, right? Definitely. And Barclay shows, uh, sorry, that picture actually leads you to conclude that, that, that hands are mental objects, right? Right. Now Hume comes along in my view and says, well, that's because this, you, you're misunderstanding what the skeptic is doing, right? I, because I interpret Hume as a naturalist. Okay. Moore comes along when there's about to be a resurgent um, <laughs> Lockeanism, a, a resurgent representationalism. Moore comes along yeah. and just goes like this, right? Yeah. Now, that's not an answer. It it's, could be. It's the beginning of an answer. But in my view, what, what Wittgenstein does is, is point out the, the obvious problem. Listen, you don't even need all these personalities. You can just do Descartes and make this point, right? Right. I justify the belief that there's a table in front of me on the basis of my senses. Okay. Right. Now, if I ask you the question, well, how do I justify the belief that my senses are reliable? I obviously can't make another appeal to my senses. That's going to be circular. Right. Right. And if you can't do that, then you can't show that. Uh, right. Right. Know, so what, right. And so hence you end up in the skeptical hole. You end up in there in 30 seconds. Right. What Wittgenstein argues is that, look, what you're ignoring is the fact that you're engaged in a practice. The practice presupposes certain things. Now, you can question, within the context of the practice, you can question all kinds of things. But you can't question the predicate upon which the practices rest, right? Otherwise, you're not engaged in the practices anymore. Okay. And so what that means is that the way that you explain what the significance of this is that the belief that there's a hand is a, has a different kind of status in a whole bunch of practices then the belief that, you know, um, 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 uh, hands are for waving or the belief that some people are miss one but have another. Or in other words, it's to make you understand that the skeptics' questions may grammatically look like other sorts of questions. Yes. But they're actually illicit in a certain way because they ignore the fact that all practices, including epistemic ones, depend on certain things standing fast, which means you can't apply the question to them, right? So, without, so ceasing to do the, without ceasing to be engaged in the practice. Okay. includes epistemic practices. Is the assertion of the existence of anything like philosophy on holiday or something like that? Or is, I mean, uh, language on holiday? Or does he, does he ultimately 
All right. Does he think that Moore knows that here's a hand and here's another? I think or not. I think he knows that, and I think he thinks that we all know it. But I think that when I think you can get to the end of this book and not know whether he thinks that or not. The skeptical arguments against it, I think he says, um, are only successfully overcome. So if you take the skeptical arguments being unanswered as a barrier, yeah, to being able to say I know that I have a hand. Yes, and he does. I think um, then the only way to do that is to, is to show that the skeptic is in some sense making a kind of mistake. Okay. Um, and in my view, the mistake is in treating claims like there's a hand as similar to claims as uh, uh, people's hands often get dirty. Right. Um, that, that one, I think it is similar. I mean, I, then, I, then I don't, then I think you're left without an answer to the skeptic other than yeah, I, I, your hand and hitting right. the guy when he says, I'm sorry, I don't find that persuasive at all. I find the right. arguments very persuasive, right? And maybe with more, I don't think I need an answer to the skeptic. Or I'm, I'm willing to sit there and say I can't prove it, okay? I can't even give like a convincing argument for it in the face of these uh, considerations. But guess what? I take myself to know it. And, uh, you know, and that means that it, that it's true, okay? That, then I believe it. But then doesn't, I mean, don't you feel, I mean, that's sort of, in my view, I actually think it diminishes more. It turns more into nothing more than Samuel Johnson kicking the stone. Yes. I love that too. I think it's cheap. It's trying to show you what you really believe, man. And it's trying to insist that you say in philosophy what you believe. I think actually it's the abandonment of philosophy. I think what it is is it's saying, look, you know, let's just, which is funny because I thought, you were all hyped for it. I mean, I thought you were all into pushing past the barrier and, you know, you know, not, right. not saying, seeing skepticism as the end of inquiry is the beginning. And now what I find out is you just want everybody to just fall back on unreflective common sense. I think we ought to rearticulate philosophy in this way. Like it's not going to be a structure of pure reasoning to justify conclusions. It's a part of human life that muddles about, you know? So I don't think, uh, I want to. I want to change philosophy. That's for sure. Uh, in this, I mean, I think that's what Moore is doing, right? He's saying, like, I'm going to say, Quay philosopher, exactly what I do actually believe. So let's start there. All right. Now let's see what can be justified, what not. You know, um, but at least let's go for some kind of sincerity on this or whatever. You know. Yeah. 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 Look, I mean, I. It's interesting. I know, it's it's funny. When we started, we agreed a lot, and as we're getting, more, we know each other better, and getting, and, and it's the discrepancy starting to come out, and which I find, which to me is incredibly rewarding, because I, right on, I really like to see. I feel like I'm still trying to understand what your view is, right? Okay, I, good, I, and. I almost Spikers. feel like we need to go back to entanglements um, because yeah. I still don't know if I think I understand. You seem to, to, to assimilate or accumulate together practices, mental processes, brute sort of matter, right? I mean, you see yes. this whole thing with the knots and the threads and all that. I'm wondering actually if I actually didn't understand it. Okay. <laughs> um, I thought maybe I maybe I thought I understood it better than I did, but because I know how sharp you are, I know when I'm saying to you, you know, this is cheap and all that. I know you're not cheap. 
which makes me think, okay, I'm still not getting where he's coming. No, from. no, it, it could be cheap, right? Because I'm enjoying. I, I agree with more. Okay, so and, and and surely that's an accusation against more. Like here's a hand, here's another. That's a cheap refutation of skepticism or whatever. But I'm I'm kind of endorsing that cheapness or something, you know, or trying to reconstruct it. Uh, in a way that's philosophically significant or something. I guess part of what, I, what what puzzles me is that in some modes and with some of the thinkers you like, you seem to be really hyped for super speculative, um, um, sure. esoteric, metaphysical kind of um, thinking. And then on, on other fronts, you then seem to want to be like a guy who just sort of wants to sort of stick with unreflective common sense. And well, I think those things reje- are- reject philosophical analysis and I guess because I'm I'm inclined to be charitable I, I don't think you're being inconsistent I suspect that there's something you have a, a way of thinking about this in mind that I'm not quite getting yet I want my metaphysics to first of all be compatible with my common sense and to reflect it and uh, you know so I, I, I kind of like I feel that my metaphysics high flown as it is at points or whatever, very abstract as it is at points is an attempt to capture my actual everyday experience and acknowledge its authenticity and acknowledge my commitment to it, you know, as an agent and stuff like this. That's where I want to start the project of figuring out what the universe is. Okay. And so I'm going to start with my ordinary experience and not undermine it. Let's see what happens. Like I'm going to embrace it and use it to expand into the metaphysical realms and stuff. I like, already the questions about epistemology and so on, um, or the abstract philosophical questions. So that's, I mean, I don't think of that as a foundationalist move or anything, but I just, uh, like I want to start out since sincerely stating what I believe and then seeing like what I could if I could create a uh, philosophical picture, even of the whole thing that's compatible with that or starts with that, you know, it almost feels to me like I, I, this, this phrase just came to my mind. I don't know whether this works or not, but it almost seems to me like in a, in a weird way, you want to deflate philosophy, but, but, in, but inflate life, right? True. In a, sense, in a sense, sort of, you know, bring them like do this yeah. with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, or identify. Or I think sort of here's life. Philosophy's gone way up here, and I simply want right. to deflate philosophy, right, to where right. it's now, <laughs> where it's reined into the to the. <laughs> it seems to me you're sort of going, you know, sort of bringing them both one down and one up. Kind of. That, that's good. I mean, I yeah. Thanks for that. Actually, I, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like you want to inflate the significance of this while simultaneously deflating the analysis of it. Yeah, or the concept of knowledge or something. Yeah, yeah. In general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what it's starting to seem like to me. Anyway, okay. um, this was really interesting. Didn't go how I expected, but that's great. Um, and it's, it's always been great, Dan. Really. Honestly, the, the audience likes it a lot better when people yell at each other. Um, 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 <laughs> you and I are such old, grizzled um, <laughs> battle scarred people that we can do this and and if you were still a drinking man go out and, and have a yeah, few afterwards that's um, true um and t- you know it's, it's interesting today people are so allergic to conflict and conflict has become so toxic 
But I think it's a good thing that people see people who like each other a lot really fighting. Right on. Um, because people then understand, oh, they don't, they don't confuse intensity for hostility, right? Um, and that's what I liked about philosophy originally a lot, a lot. You know, just that you, like a real deep, important conflict, which you're pro- prosecuting at maximum, yeah. the maximum of your abilities. Yeah. But, you know, that, that's, that can be fun for one thing, and it could be enlightening possibly uh, as well. Yeah, I really miss that. It's sort of, you know, at, when, in the old days when I was in graduate school, you'd have the weekly colloquium, the speaker would come, people would not just brutalize, the, the speaker would, would brutalize each other. And yeah. then after it all, you went out to the, went up to the bar and yeah. you all drank together and ate cheese and wine and cheese. And, and you realized, <laughs> oh, these people are just in, it's almost like sports, right? Yes. Um, I and, like that. Um, I think we've completely lost that now. Um, yes. Philosophy. Um, is so there's so is so brittle. Yeah, uh, and I think this is I think one of the ways the reasons why we 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 seem to agree so much, even though we disagree on almost everything, is because I think in that fundamental temperamental way, we both feel the same way about how this should be done. I agree. Yeah. Um, Did yeah. you read that Agnes Callard piece? Uh, yeah, she's she's been by the way on Blogging Heads now. I think once or twice. Okay. She's one of the most interesting people. She's one of the most interesting people around right now. Yeah, I think, I think so too. Um, yeah, and um, she had a piece is philosophy of fight club, which is about this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I wish more people would listen to her actually. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much. Um, thanks, how's, your semester, how's your semester going? All right. Yeah. So far so good coming up on midterms, you know, yeah, going pretty good. Yeah, mine's going pretty well also. Yeah. Um, anyway, I look forward to uh, reading whatever you have next coming out. I mean, and uh, looking forward to talking to you soon. Thanks so much, Dan. Take care, my friend. Peace. Ciao. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, So taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.